Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife and another installment of the Big T Trauma Series. This series offers clinically oriented material that focuses on how best to care for traumatically injured and critically ill patients. The information presented in this podcast is designed for surgical trainees, but it's appropriate for anyone with an interest in trauma surgery. And this includes medical students, advanced practice providers, and nurses. My name is Patrick Georgioff, and I'm an acute care surgeon at Wake Med Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina. And joining me today are two of my good friends and former co-fellows at the home of Big T Trauma, the University of Texas in Houston. First, we've got Dr. Teddy Puzio, who is currently faculty at UT and an assistant program director for the Acute Care Fellowship. We've also got Dr. Jason Brill, who has way too many titles to mention uh, in the Navy, but he is also trauma medical director for the United States Indo-Pacific Command, and probably more importantly, a baller uh, part-time barber. In fact, he gave many a haircut in the call room during the peak of COVID, keeping us all looking good and sharp throughout the pandemic. So I'm excited for this episode. Brill, why don't you give us a little intro into what we're talking about? Yeah, sure. So this is part one of a two-part series on the ED thoracotomy, aka resuscitative thoracotomy. This first episode covers the who, and our next episode covers the how. The most important decision you will make when it comes to an ED thoracotomy is who gets one. That's right. So, you know, even though it's uh, the most important, it's probably the most overwhelming decisions you can make, right? The patient rolls in, they're an extremist. People are kind of everywhere. The entire team is looking at you because you're the captain. The thoracotomy tray is uh, prepped and ready. So the question becomes, do you pick up the knife and, and start making the cut? Right, Teddy, you're absolutely right. This can be a harrowing decision. It's the ED thoracotomy lives in a, it's an entity all of its own, and it is extraordinarily complex. So, are you giving up on the patient? Are you letting them die if you if you don't do it, or if you do, are you performing a frivolous procedure that's putting other people at risk and wasting precious resources at your institution? Now, there's a certain amount of art and patient specific decision making that goes into these decisions there's also a stepwise way to approach it. So we're here to try to break this complex, often chaotic situation, just break it down into simpler steps. First, let's discuss why one might do an ED thoracotomy. In other words, what can be achieved? Yeah, that's a good starting point. So there's kind of two things you're doing it for. One is you're going to do it to fix a problem in the chest. So patient comes in, stabbed to the chest, stabbed to the heart. You're going to do it so you can rapidly um, kind of assess and treat that injury, or you're going to do it so that you resuscitate the patient with cardiac massage and aortic cross clamp. So something, an injury outside of the chest, but you need to get aortic control. Let's discuss when we should actually do it. So how do we go about making that decision? Sure. Again, this is the tough part. There isn't really a clear cut consensus on this. Much of the decision-making is guided by local protocol and some evidence base, but you know, to be honest, there are wide variations among providers and, and certainly different centers. How about we start with the extremes? Who should usually get a thoracotomy? And then on the other side of the spectrum, who really shouldn't, at least in most cases? And the extremes are based on who is expected to survive or not. 
Yeah. And I think before we you know, go on to that, it's also important to, to point out what the term survival uh, really means. You know, we should define that. It's important that most studies requ- uh, use the term survival to mean survival to discharge, but not all. I mean, some, some count it survival from the ED. Um, and then, you know, it's also important to recognize that survival doesn't necessarily mean neurologically intact, which is, you know, ultimately the goal, but the literature is kind of uh, gray as far as what, what outcomes we're talking about. Right. And, and, and we should note that single stab wound to the chest for a patient who loses uh, vitals in front of you in the trauma bay has a truly decent chance of survival up to a one in three chance of survival to discharge we're talking about here. And the vast majority of those patients will in fact be neurologically intact. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum, most society guidelines would advise not even starting a thoracotomy for situations deemed quote unquote futile. So the strongest argument against thoracotomy would be in a blunt injured patient without vitals in the field or signs of life who has more than 15 minutes of CPR and multiple obvious injuries on primary survey. So in this very complex blunt injured patient who had prolonged CPR, survival is well under 1% and neurologic status in the handful that might survive to discharge is generally poor. Right. And so penetrating injury to the chest who loses vitals in front of you, pretty darn good chance of survival actually. Uh, and, uh, Bluntly injured patients who lose uh, uh, signs of life in the field, poor chance of survival. But, but what about the people in the middle? And so let's let's review what the leading trauma organizations say about when to, to proceed with an ethoricotomy and see if we can put that in context and decide what to do for those for those less clear patients. Yeah, I like to think of it as the gray indications, right? We talked about the black and the white. It's easy, the ones that you definitely do or definitely don't do, but it's kind of the ones in the middle. So, you know, we have guidelines from national organizations, including the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma, the Western Trauma Association has guidelines, and then finally the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma also has guidelines. So, as you can see, there's three different ones, similar but all different. Um, So, today we're just going to focus on Western Trauma Association, Eastern Trauma Association guidelines, because these, of the three, these are a little bit more concrete Right. So let's start with, with Western. These are the easiest uh, to remember. Uh, these are the, the indications you hear quoted the most in the trauma bay or at a trauma uh, a case conference. So the Western Trauma Association recommends um, resuscitative thoracotomy in the following situations. So for blunt trauma patients with less than 10 minutes of pre-hospital CPR, for penetrating torso trauma patients with less than 15 minutes of CPR, penetrating trauma to the neck or extremity with less than five minutes of pre-hospital CPR, and a pretty broad statement here for patients who are, quote, in profound refractory shock, end quote. Now, another thing that's really important to remember about the Western trauma guidelines is that there's a, there's a huge caveat, an asterisk, if you will, um, that says the following. So immediately following ED thoracotomy, the patient's intrinsic cardiac activity is evaluated. And if that patient is in a systole without cardiac tamponade, again, without cardiac tamponade, that patient is declared dead. So uh, a very interesting uh, and, and a huge caveat to, to point out if you are going to be looking at the Western Trauma Association guidelines and, uh, and using them or quoting them. So we'll come back to that a little bit later, too. Yeah. So how about East, Teddy? I think you, yeah. So East is, I feel like a little bit uh, more gray. There's definitely not numbers to kind of spit out and remember. Um, But 
the ease guidelines depend kind of on blunt or penetrating, and then it depends on where the injury actually is. So the first one is kind of the most definitive. So in penetrating thoracic injury, EAST gives a strong recommendation to do an ED thoracotomy if the patient presents um, pulseless with signs of life. Again, we'll cover what that means later. They give a conditional recommendation for ED thoracotomy if a patient presents with a penetrating thoracic injury pulseless without signs of life. So the, it's important whether or not there's signs of life. Um, secondly, when we look at blunt patients, so EAST gives a conditional recommendation for blunt patients with signs of life to undergo ED thoracotomy, but recommends against ED thoracotomy for blunt trauma patients that do not have signs of life. All right. So Western is pretty clear in that they rely on duration of CPR to determine whether thoracotomy is indicated. Um, this is my personal opinion, but I think an important caveat in that is that time in the field isn't always accurately perceived. Uh, I think Teddy and I have both been in the back of an ambulance, perhaps in previous lives, when five minutes feels like an hour and vice versa. So it's not that you can't you know, trust what you're being told, but I, I do think it deserves some interpretation of what you're getting from that provider when they hand over a patient in the trauma bay. Yeah, I mean, it's not really a knock on the pre-hospital providers. It's more, you know, it's important to realize that the scene especially a scene like this, a blunt arrest or a penetrating arrest can at times be total chaos. Um, it's helpful that the Western Trauma Association has clear time cutoffs, but uh, in reality, in the streets and in the trauma bay, it's, it's not always that clear the time that's elapsed. Right. So East, on the other hand, qualifies recommendations based on signs of life. Signs of life are defined by East as pupillary response, spontaneous ventilation, presence of carotid pulse, measurable or at least a palpable blood pressure, any extremity movement, or cardiac electrical activity. So with those definitions, a patient may be pulseless because you just can't appreciate one, their blood pressure may be too low, but if they have pupillary response or cardiac activity, then they have signs of life. And I think that's an important distinction that is um, sometimes glossed over when reading their guidelines. I think these, these signs of life make a sense, right? Spontaneous ventilation, palpable blood pressure, those patients definitely have signs of life. And that makes sense. But, but there's one, one on the list that's a little bit confusing. That's cardiac electrical activity. So, so what if the heart is quivering, for instance, without discernible organized activity? Is that a sign of life? Um, does the cardiac activity have to be organized? And so it's really hard to say definitively, but in some circumstances, non-organized cardiac activity may not be considered a sign of life. So for example, a large retrospective review showed that pulseless trauma patients who had CPR at the scene, en route, or in the ED, and had an initial electrical heart rate that was less than 40 beats per minute, all died before leaving the hospital. And so at Wake Med, for instance, we define cardiac electrical activity as greater than 40 QRS complexes per minute. Um, and uh, you can check out the show notes for more. We'll, we'll provide a link to our pulseless blunt trauma resuscitation guideline. That's courtesy of, of my partner, Dr. Scott Moore. Yeah, that's, that's some great stuff. I, but I think it's also important to, you know, really put it in clinical context, right? So if, 
if the patient had 40 minutes of CPR and now they have a quivering heart, that's not so great. But, you know, if you've been doing CPR for five minutes and now you have a quivering heart, you know, it's a totally different story. So you got to kind of think about exactly um, what you're dealing with. Yeah, I, I totally agree. That's another example of how you need to take these guidelines, but then put them into the context of what's in front of you um, and then a- apply your own clinical judgment rather than just following road guidelines. Well, let's put these definitions of signs of life into practice now. Um, so here's a scenario. A 26-year-old female arrives at your trauma bay following a motor vehicle collision. It was a bad wreck, prolonged extrication, EMS reports that she was a GCS of three with a pulse at the scene, but then pulses were lost en route, and CPR has now been in progress for 20 minutes. On arrival, there's a King airway in place. She has bilateral breath sounds. There's no palpable pulse. There's no measurable blood pressure, and a GCS that's now a 3T. What's next, Patrick? At the ED thoracotomy? Yeah, so so not so fast. So this is definitely one of those. This is in why we're doing this case. This is a, a patient in the gray zone, right? Um, and so we're going to use all that clinical information. But first, let's go back to those guidelines. Um, as a blunt patient, she does not meet the WTA criteria, or so the Western Trauma Association criteria for an ED thoracotomy, as she has had more than ten minutes of CPR. And again, she's a blunt trauma patient. Now, again, we, we just spent some time talking about this, but remember that the EAST guidelines qualify the recommendations according to signs of life. So does this patient have any signs of life? We already know she doesn't have a pulse or measurable blood pressure. Uh, so we uh, would have to explicitly check for pupillary response, watch for spontaneous ventilation or extremity movement, and check for uh, cardiac electrical activity. Okay. So let's say she has no pupillary response no spontaneous ventilation, no extremity movement. We've discussed cardiac activity, but how do you guys assess for it? Right. Um, And there's multiple ways, but this can be done most easily with telemetry, certainly, right? So if you pick up some electrical activity on telemetry, that makes sense. Uh, But you can also use an ultrasound, and really ultrasound is, in fact, the gold standard. Uh, I think telemetry is fairly straightforward, um, but Give me a little more explanation about ultrasound. Ultrasound is is not something that is covered in the Western or East guidelines for AD thoracotomy, right? Right. And so, yeah, so ultrasound is, is extraordinarily useful because it can show you two very, very important things. The first, if there is cardiac activity present and the second, if there is tamponade present. Uh, and it should really only take you a few seconds to determine that as long as you have a working ultrasound um, in the room with you. Uh, so in this scenario, you do the ultrasound and you see no cardiac activity, no tamponade. Again, this is the blunt injured patient with 20 plus minutes of CPR ongoing. All right. Then this patient would in fact uh, be declared uh, dead. Um, now ultrasound is a very powerful tool uh, when it comes to a determining the appropriateness for ED thoracotomy. And when it comes to this, there's one study that everyone should really know. And this is a 2015 uh, paper uh, by Anaba and colleagues uh, who published a prospective evaluation in, in annals of surgery that looked at pericardial fast uh, results in patients who required ED thoracotomy. And they concluded that, I quote, the likelihood of survival if pericardial fluid and cardiac motion were both absent was zero. Again, in the absence of tamponade and in the absence of cardiac activity, survival was zero for all of their patients. Okay, so scenario switch. What if the heart is fibrillating and like before, again, there's no tamponade? 
Sure. So as previously discussed, this is where it gets murky. So how do you define electrical cardiac activity? Is it any cardiac activity whatsoever, or is it QRS complexes at more than 40 beats per minute? Now, we should probably note that QRS complexes look like organized cardiac activity on ultrasound, meaning the heart is beating in a coordinated fashion. If there is any type of activity, then you could be justified in proceeding with ED thoracotomy, especially in the right clinical scenario, again, like we mentioned before, but in this case, the patient's chance of survival are absolutely dismal after a blunt injury like this and prolonged CPR. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my two cents about the organized cardiac activity is on the ultrasound probe. Um, if you see coordinated activity, I, I count that. And that's what I put in my dictations to you know, organized cardiac activity. And I, I think that clears it in my mind a little bit that you know, here's my definition. Um, and, you know, take that for what you will. Maybe that helps. Maybe it doesn't. Sure. Okay. So uh, again, scenario switch, but what about fibrillation? And now there is tamponade as well. So in this case, you've identified a reversible problem tamponade. And so for that reason, I would perform an ED thoracotomy, especially in a young patient like this. And I would also ensure that the trauma team is working to ensure that we have a reliable airway. Remember this patient came in with a King airway and that we decompress the right chest by performing finger thoracostomy and or chest tube placement because tension pneumothorax is another reversible cause of arrest. Um, and in general, ensuring you have a secure airway and venting the right chest if you're moving forward with an ED thoracotomy is, is good practice. And that's interesting. We start to bring age into it. Also not part of the guidelines, but as we can all logically guess, age is going to, to a certain extent, dictate outcomes. So Teddy, same patient, arrives after undergoing five minutes of CPR, pulseless, but has pupillary reflexes, electrical cardiac activity on the monitor, and you don't see tamponade on ultrasound. Yeah, I, for this one, I would proceed with an ED thoracotomy. Uh, I would open the pericardium, perform cardiac massage, cross clamp the aorta, and resuscitate the patient. You know, we got to remember that ED thoracotomy, again, is formed to fix a problem in the chest, like a stab to the heart. Uh, and or assist with resuscitation through cardiac massage and aortic cross clamping. Okay, same patient, uh, but instead of five minutes of CPR, loses pulses in the trauma bay in front of you. Yeah, I feel like that one's pretty common because, you know, sometimes, especially here in Houston, we have BLS crews that don't have cardiac monitoring. You know, they, they just try to get patients as fast as they can to us and they lose pulses in the trauma bay. But yeah, that, that's one that definitely gets an ecotomy. All right. So um, totally new scenario then, new patient, 24-year-old man shot in the left chest. CPR has been in progress for 35 minutes. There are no signs of life on arrival. Ultrasound shows no cardiac activity and no tamponade. Yeah. I, I think, again, that's kind of an easy one. Um, I think most people would agree that that patient's dead uh, and I wouldn't do any thoracotomy. Okay. So what if everything in that scenario remains the same, but on ultrasound, you see the heart quivering and again, no tamponade. Yeah. I mean, this is a tough one, right? Cause there's, you know, people are going to be looking at the ultrasound with you, but again, in the context, 35 minutes of CPR, uh, I would say that the patient is still dead, especially if there's no tamponade. Um, I would make it clear to the trauma team why this is the case, right? You don't just say, oh, we're doing nothing and walk away, but you would 
stop resuscitative efforts uh, and make sure that everyone on the team is in agreement. Uh, it's not really giving up. It's just doing what's right. Um, how about this 24-year-old man who is now stabbed in the left chest? Um, and this time, CPR has been in progress for 15 minutes, you know, right, right on the border. He's pulseless on arrival, no other signs of life. Ultrasound shows weak, you know, but organized cardiac activity. And you're seeing about 50 to, to 60 beats per minute. What would you do? Yeah, so signs of life penetrating in the chest. I would, I would do an ED thoracotomy for sure. All right, same guy. CPR for less than five minutes instead of fifteen minutes, uh, as in like the medic tells you they they lost a pulse while they were backing up in the ambulance bay. So you can pretty well assume it's only been a few minutes. Yeah, I would wonder if someone paid the medic to say that because <laughs> I think they catch on to <laughs> to knowing that that it's important when they die. But uh, seriously, uh, so. I would say this patient gets an ED thoracotomy on arrival, right? Regardless of what other signs of life there are. I mean, you have to go with what the report is. And if it truly happened in the trauma bay is in the ambulance bay as they're rolling in, this is the perfect uh, candidate for the reasons we discussed previously. Um, He's really kind of at the highest end of the spectrum uh, for survival. Yeah, although not to be a Debbie Donner, uh, even though he's at the highest end of survival, the statistics are that most of these folks will still not make it, uh, which is a good segue into specific numbers for outcomes. So as some of you have either heard or seen, um, some patients actually live afterwards, just not all that many of them. So we already said that penetrating injuries carry the best survival rates, but best isn't necessarily a high number here. The 2015 East Practice Management Guidelines included a systematic review, which found that overall hospital survival of penetrating injuries was 10.6%, although of that 10%, 90% were neurologically intact. Um, For blunt injuries, the numbers plummet, Hospital survival in that series and uh, that review was 2.3%, and only 60% of those were neurologically intact. Really not, not good numbers, no matter how you look at it. Yeah, but I mean, I think the, that trend is, is pretty clear across the literature that the survival is higher in, in penetrating injuries. Um, so another example, in cardiac injuries, undergoing ED thoracotomy, there's been some literature that have survival rates of uh, 17% in pooled studies uh, and up to 35% for single stab uh, cardiac wounds. And that was an article published by Berlou at the, at the WTA algorithm and um, journal of a trauma and acute care surgery in 2012. Uh, another study that showed any signs of life in the hospital carries a, uh, 11 to 12% survival as in comparison to uh, losing vitals in route. Um, where the survival dips to single digits. Uh, that's a study from um, Seaman et al. in the journal Trauma in 2015. Now, now Brill, didn't you have uh, not too long ago some pretty impressive cases of, of survival with these dismal numbers? Uh, yeah, I, I had a pretty good run um, in the spring of, of last year. Um, so, and we did, in one of those cases, have one of those quote-unquote miracle cases. Um, and, and I was part of the team, and I I still tell the story. Uh, This girl was unconscious during a prolonged extrication after a blunt mechanism, MVC, uh, a little bit outside the city. 
And once CMS was finally able to get to her, she had no vitals, no signs of life. She underwent 35 minutes of CPR en route. And she arrived with fixed dilated pupils. There were multiple body cavity injuries and everybody in the room was ready to call it. Uh, but as part of the algorithm here, you know, we put an ultrasound on her chest and lo and behold, it shows organized cardiac activity. So I'll, I'll skip the details um, because that's the next episode, but Ford passed the Texas T and controlling her abdominal injuries and a two week hospital stay. And she walked out of the hospital, was neurologically intact and at her baseline at her clinic follow-up visit. Yeah, that's, that is crazy, you know? And I mean, I think that those are the stories, right? That brings up the key point that all this stuff that we're going over, these protocols, these guidelines, that's really all they are, just guidelines. They don't tell you what to do all the time, right? Um, and it doesn't replace your clinical judgment. Um, and, you know, and, and we, as we talked about, an ultrasound really is an important tool in the trauma bay. Um, but I think we really need to clarify one thing, Brill. So what is Texas, a Texas tea? It's not, it's not something you drink, right? Everyone out there is thinking what well, they were drinking All right. tea in the it, trauma bay. We should spell it. Uh, so in Texas, and then just a capital T, just the letter T. So that is endearingly used to mean a clamshell thoracotomy plus a laparotomy. So not a scar that you see on a live person all that often. All right. Awesome. So uh, let's let's talk about something um, a little more controversial. So epinephrine. Uh, do you guys give it in traumatic arrests? So uh, no. I think sh- short answer, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. You sure? Uh, Even the ATLS says, you know? Yeah, right. And, and that's a, a good point. It's, it's tempting to give. And a lot of people around you are going to expect you to give it. In fact, I've been prompted, well, don't you want epi? Well, in fact, it, it is supported by ATLS guidelines, at least when ventricular fibrillation is encountered during the resuscitation but really only then and and hold strong because multiple studies show that the administration of epinephrine worsens outcomes when given in the setting of traumatic arrest as if that were possible here. Uh, One study uh, that I think is fairly well-powered in 2012, um, Yamamoto and colleagues retrospectively analyzed 1,125 adults with traumatic arrest in Japan uh, all of whom arrested prior to arrival in the hospital. Um, in that study, the use of epi was associated with an 80% relative decrease in survival. 5% of the patients who didn't receive epi survived to seven days, and only 1% of the patients receiving epi at the hospital survived. You know, the obvious question is, well, it's a retrospective study, so you know, these patients probably weren't matched. Well, they did use propensity score matching, um, which confirmed the results of the univariate analysis and trying to account for all the confounders. And I'm not saying that it's the definitive word, but it isn't the first or the last time we've heard that massive doses of pressors worsen outcomes after trauma. So at Houston, we don't give epi in a traumatic cardiac arrest. They get MTP and calcium, and we work on the surgical stuff. Right. And, and anecdotally, you know, epinephrine can really muddy the waters, especially when it comes to, to blunt injuries. And so the, the heart may be moving, 
but that doesn't mean that your outcomes are going to be much better. And uh, it certainly uh, is linked to increased resource utilization and, and without benefit, as suggested by multiple studies, one of which, you know, Burley just went through. And I think it also creates some significant angst amongst the trauma team when you have to declare a patient dead after 30 minutes of of, uh, of resuscitation, a ED thoracotomy, blood products, intubation, et cetera, when their heart is still uh, uh, moving after getting uh, you know, a whole bunch of epinephrine. And that's an uncomfortable situation to be in. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely uh, an uncomfortable gray zone. Um, you know, you're looking at cardiac activity, um, but there's not ROSC, right? You don't have return of spontaneous circulation. So if you had asystole in this patient, uh, the decision is much more straightforward, right? The patient's dead. Um, but if you have continued cardiac activity, no perfusing rhythm, you're tempted to just throw the book at them, right? You got to that point, you just keep going, keep giving blood, um, keep doing open open cardiac massage. But most protocols state that there's like a 30-minute time limit from the start of the thoracotomy. If you haven't achieved ROSC at that point, you're not going to. Yeah. And I think that's a good segue into why not to perform a thoracotomy. You know, we've been talking about indications and miraculous success stories. So the upside is fairly obvious. You have a chance to truly save a life or, you know, more dramatically bring them back from the dead. I've heard that one or two times, but anyway, the downside still deserves consideration. So thoracotomies are dangerous for you and the people around you. They can and should be performed safely, but the fact remains that exposures, glove punctures, scalpel cuts, etc., they're higher for resuscitative thoracotomy than pretty much any other procedure, right? You're, you're trying to go quickly. Uh, there may not be a scrub tech next to you to safeguard sharps. Um, scalpels get left on surfaces. Ribs always crack as you spread yeah. them and can slice through your, your uh, gloves and your fingers. Mm-hmm. So They're always yeah, sharp on that too. note, just a, a word of safety, never start a thoracotomy without full PPE, which in, in my definition is glasses, a mask, gown, and double gloves. You know, if you are thinking that the 30 seconds it takes you to put that stuff on is going to make or break this case, then, you know, put it on before you receive every patient is probably the best advice. And so even then recognize that Slow is smooth and smooth is and fast. Smooth is fast. I, I, Don't I, cause injuries I, by working unsafely, please. I, I think it's also, you know, I remember as a resident, right? Like you want to do one of these so bad. Most of us, right? We, we go into surgery for this kind of stuff, but it's important to hear that, right? These are dangerous, right? And then the second reason that you should maybe not always be super gung-ho to do the thoracotomies is that they're also extremely resource intensive, right? You can consume your entire blood supply, lots of equipment, many person work hours. Um, if you have a legitimate chance of saving someone, then yeah, of course, that's that's what you should do. But if you're working on something that's futile, you're not going to get results and you're wasting all those resources that you could be using on, on someone else that's salvageable. So, you know, at worst, you can expend all your effort and then not be prepared for the, the next patient that rolls in unexpectedly, unexpectedly 10 minutes later. So, you know, you could have no blood to give them. No one's prepared and your equipment's not ready uh, is also something to, to consider. Right. And, and certainly knowing the capabilities of your center 
uh, may impact how you practice and how you make this decision. So not every hospital can handle an EED thoracotomy and immediately be ready for the next critically injured patient. Um, and so perhaps the most responsible decision is not to start that ED thoracotomy at all uh, in patients who have uh, a very little to uh, essentially no chance of survival um, or to start it, but call it if you're unable to get ROSC. Remember that, uh, again, that Western Trauma Association, this is the reason they put that in there. They recommend that the patient's intrinsic cardiac activity be evaluated immediately after you open the chest and open the pericardial sac. And if they're in asystole, uh, and there's no evidence of tamponade that they can and should be declared then and there. And again, there's a lot of gray zone within that, but that's part of the rationale for including that. All right, guys. So we're getting close to the end. Any other words of wisdom about who or when um, for an ED thoracotomy? I think obvious brain injury deserves mention. Uh, and I, I don't mean yours, Patrick. Come on, man. That's <laughs> <Come on. laughs> so, Open cranial injury, especially with brain that was visible on the scene or it's on the EMS stretcher, that should contraindicate even starting a resuscitative thoracotomy, in my opinion. I also think uh, patients that come in with fixed and dilated pupils, especially after CPR, uh, it's kind of one of the, you know, we we teach ABC and ATLS, um, and we don't really talk about looking at their pupils, but this is one of those times where I have them at the head of the bed, look at their eyes and see, are their pupils fixed and dilated, which if they are, it's a really poor prognostic sign. Um, not entirely diagnostic, but it, it kind of helps you think about the patient um, differently. Yeah. And I'll, I'll mention another systems-based practice point. Uh, if your facility doesn't have a surgeon trained to deal with the injury at hand, you know, say you aren't practicing at a trauma center or you can't get an OR open within 15 minutes for whatever reason, I wouldn't start something you know you can't finish. I, I totally agree with that. Uh, you know, there's a lots of flexibility in the guidelines, but, you know, it's really important just to reiterate what you said, Brill, is that the resuscitative thoracotomy is a bridge. And one of my attendings in residency used to say, don't build a bridge to nowhere, right? If you are at a center where, or a, a critical access hospital where you don't have an operating room, uh, you can't really help the patient. Yeah. We're also not going to talk about a certain resuscitative balloon that gets a lot of attention. (laughs) We have other episodes for that. Yeah. So go go arrange your own pro con debate or journal club for that topic. Thank thank goodness. But I think that, um, you know, as we wrap up, I think, you know, maybe Teddy, you you could comment on how these ED thoracotomies impact the team because they're, they're a big deal. I mean, they can be very gory. Uh, Some folks may not have uh, been exposed to something like this before. Yeah, you know, I think there's a couple of things that I always talk to with the team, especially the residents. You know, when an EED thoracotomy is over uh, and and you're not successful, it's it's not the end, right? There's a couple of things that you should do. One, you should kind of check in with everyone that's been involved in the care of that patient, right? We forget that there's medical students who, you know, this might be day one of surgery, or there's nursing students who are in the ED kind of for the first time. And a resuscitative thoracotomy is a very traumatic graphic um, procedure that sometimes it's good to just make sure that everybody who is a part of it is okay with kind of what, what happened. Um, And I think the second thing, it's also a really, really good opportunity to provide some education, right? Without a doubt. 
take your junior residents through cross-clamping the aorta. Um, you can kind of teach the medical students what all the anatomy looks like. I even love to get kind of the medics in there, right? The firefighters that brought the patient to you and, and kind of get them involved and, and see what, what we're working with. I think those are kind of opportunities that we can, we can take advantage of. Yeah, that's a great point, Teddy. Um, you know, the teaching doesn't stop when you declare the patient dead. And unfortunately, that will be the vast majority of the times that you attempt this. So walk your juniors through the process. And, and I would start with why or why not you started the process, uh, i.e. this episode. Right, right. All right. Awesome discussion, gentlemen. Uh, be sure to join us, uh, everyone listening, for part two, where we go in-depth on how to perform an ED thoracotomy. So until next time, you can uh, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.